in real life, everyone loves the good guys. In Shakespeare, though, it seems a lot of us really love the bad guys. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Since the 1990s, playwright and actor Stephen Burkhoff has been traveling the world with a one-man show titled Shakespeare's Villains. It's fitting, coming from the actor many of you know best as Victor Maitland in Beverly Hills Cop, that Burkhoff promotes the show's examination of Iago, Shylock, Richard III, the Macbeths, and others as a masterclass in evil. A film has now been made of that performance, and with additional material from Henry V, it's called Shakespeare's Heroes and Villains. We invited Stephen Burkhoff in to give us his thoughts on why these monstrous characters hold such an appeal. We call this podcast, I Am Alone, the Villain of the Earth. Common cry of curs, whose breath I hate as reek of the rotten fence. Stephen Burkhoff is interviewed by Barbara Bogey. I banish you! When you first started performing this piece in the 1990s, the title was Shakespeare's Villains, and you primarily focus on villains throughout the film. So why villains? Well, I decided to make a one-man show on Shakespeare's characters, and I found uh, by just chance I was leaning more towards the darker characters. And I thought, well, why not make the program devoted to villains? And this, I thought, might be interesting because it gives an insight into the kind of behavior, the psychological behavior of people, not only then, but even today. I found, as I was studying them, that they shared certain characteristics. And... um, they would be keen to express these characteristics as a means of justification for their actions. Therefore, they can be, in a way, they feel they can purge themselves of any sense of real guilt because somebody did something to them. That's really what drew me to them. That's so interesting that you say that, because when I think of villains, uh, as you speak, I was just going to ask you, how do you define a Shakespearean villain? But as you're describing what interests you about them, I'm thinking of the ways in which villains in films, how there's so much exposition. There's always this point where they, as you say, justify themselves or reveal their interior neurosis. Yes, of course, yes. So so how do you define a, a Shakespearean villain? Well, you you define him or her really by someone who is manifestly in pain, somehow self-righteous, suffering from a sense of entitlement. Cassio, who is Othello's lieutenant, who's been employed over me, gets blinding drunk one night, organized by me. Why? Because I can't stand him. He has taken my position. I should be Othello's lieutenant. So I try to ruin his reputation. It's a terrible thing to lose your reputation. Uh, That's what carrots are there, always in a perpetual state 
of grief, whereas another character evolves. He develops according to the stimulus coming in to the daily life. But the villain clings to his particular uh, obsession. Schadenfreude. Sounds a little like Chardonnay, Iago's favourite wine. Anyway, Cassio comes to me and he says, Oh, Iago, what can I do? I got blinding drunk last night. I know I've lost my reputation in front of Othello, in front of the boss. Oh, God, I'm so... I feel so humiliated. Yeah, I did. Hey, Cassio, chill out. There's a solution. All you have to do is to go to Desdemona. She has the ear, amongst other things, of Othello, and she will plead your case for you. And so that's interesting. They all have something to say about the fact that they haven't been included. Now, not to be included in society means you're a perpetual outsider. So that's why, why I chose to do the villains, because they all had something very much in common. Yes, and you explain that and talk about that so in such a vivid way in the film that it would seem that you can break villains down into a whole slew of cat- categories as you do, clever and stupid. And mad and clever villains, juvenile villains, mad villains, banal villains, uh, insane villains, psychotic villains, comical villains, serialistic villains. But the one thing that uh, they all seem to have in common is that they are unlovable. Bitter love, sour love, sweet and sour love, crazy love, insane love, psychotic love, passionate love, jealous love, love, love. So they all have this in common. Although, how did you choose who made the cut among Shakespeare's villains for your show? Because some of them, like Iago and Shylock and, and Richard III, are all, that's all predictable. But at one point in your stage show, you also included Hamlet. Well, I had played Hamlet many years ago, and I thought this gives me a kind of a little bit of an easy journey. I know the speech, I, and I do a commentary after each speech, I found I was finding, in fact, villainy, even in the heroes, that they all have a little touch, a twist somewhere. And Hamlet certainly does, because his abuse of Ophelia goes beyond what might be, say, justified. And you see later how he loves death. So... How does that play, this infatuation or this fascination with death, that moment, how does that play into your theme of villainy? Because you also point out that uh, Shakespeare places sex and death very close together in Macbeth as well. As if sex and death occupy the same motel with only a very thin wall between them. So what does that mean to you? How does it inform Macbeth's villainy? Well, Shakespeare is a very, very acute and perceptive analyst, but he does this unconsciously because he's a genius. He is able to take from the raw material to find that vein of gold. And he does this, and we find that um, 
when even Macbeth says to his wife, Lady Macbeth, such I account thy love, art thou feared to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteem the ornament of life and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would like the poor cat in the adage of pretty peace? A dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is not. Oh. Immediately after, he starts talking about love and sex, quite unconsciously, as a kind of metaphor. I bring forth men children only, for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. Will it not be received? Within 60 seconds of agreeing to murder the king, he's talking about bringing forth men, children, and, and being a wonderful, proud mother. No less than Hamlet does have mentioned this, is that after he's killed Polonius, and his mother Gertrude is momentarily distraught. But then, because this is a reflex action in Shakespeare, he is suddenly talking about sex. He said, go not to my uncle's bed. Assume a virtue if you have it not. Refrain tonight, and that will lend ease to another night and the next more easy. So there is this curious feature in characters how the sex and murder are often so close together. Um, what she is, his wife, Lady Macbeth, is... As Shakespeare always has, she is a catalyst. And it is also quite interesting how she uses sex to drive Macbeth to the goals that she has set for him. When he says, come you spirits, attend on mortal thought, unsex me here. Interesting use of words. Unsex me here. And fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. What does she mean by this? Shakespeare seldom uses any words that aren't absolutely vital and functional. So what does he mean when he says, unsex me here? Well, it means take away my sex. Take away my womanhood, take away my fragility, take away my femininity, take away my softness, take away my weakness, take away that which men perceive in women to be their, their highest feature, their nurturing, their nourishing, their protecting. Take it away, rip it out, tear it all out of you. And what are you left with? A male. She has driven away any of those finer sensitive feelings of the female, which might just deter her passion to have the king killed, might just give her too, a little too much awareness. And then I say, of course, Macbeth has become the female. Uncertain, not knowing what to do, what decision to make. Can he or can't he do it? He doesn't know. And it's terrible, because when you have a dilemma, you have a decision to make, and you don't know what to do, the more you wait, the more that virus of uncertainty curdles within you and poisons you, 
So if you have a decision to make, even if it's the wrong one, it doesn't matter. Make a decision. Perhaps you can amend it. But if you don't make any decision, you just slowly but surely decay. Well, you drop these really provocative ideas in, in the midst of your beautiful performances. And, and one of them is that you say that people are drawn to villains because we almost all have an unfulfilled villain within us. Tell, tell me more about that, because we all certainly have the capacity for evil, but for true villainy, when I think about it, the absence of empathy, I, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Well, we are... A combination of characters. We are in a modern world with all the stimulus we have. We're an amalgam of many, many things. There are parts of us. We're lovers and we're villains and uh, we're philosophers and we're uh, greedy and we're generous. We're mixtures of so many different things and we can be moved in so many different ways. And when we see a villain and he's doing something completely obnoxious, but if he does it, wittily then we think oh it's funny when when richard the third goes on his murdering rampage he does it uh, with such wit that we like him we we the audience all laugh there's something about the villain which touches something deep in us we have deep in us a form of villainy it is a cancer which we all have a cell of There's maybe in the back, there's a tiny germ that can be provoked. And it is often easily provoked in times of anger, conflict. And this little cell, when it sees someone like Iago or Macbeth or Richard, that little cell starts to beep. It starts to light up a bit. It can be stimulated, same way a cell could be stimulated by a noxious drug, a noxious substance. And so I think we all have this ability to be villains. Yes. It's infectious. And you say that in your uh, section about Richard, who you seem to really relish. You say in the film that Richard is the favorite villain of actors to play, that Richard gets inside your blood. It infects you. Is that your personal experience from, from performing, Richard? Uh, well, I think, I think it is. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. Now the clouds had lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths. Ooh, our bruised arms hung up for monuments. Our stern alarms changed to merry meetings. Our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed its wrinkled front. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in the ladies' chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. Well, from the point of view of an actor, you say of Richard he's the clever villain with a mind like a laptop computer and that he can say off with his head with the same feeling as another lump of sugar, please. So 
when that's correct. When yeah, when you're when you are inhabiting Richard, is that the key to bringing him to life, or, or to any psychopath? This utter lack of conscience, this being offhand about depravity. Oh, you're absolutely right when you say that. It's um, it's the lack of conscience. It is like being born without a, a sense of hearing, or or being colorblind, or lacking taste buds. It's a, a most severe and terrible handicap. How can people do certain things? How can they say certain things? I mean, if you see a little animal, you know, you might pick up a little kitten that looks like it's distressed and meowing and it will break your heart. But there are some people who just kick it out of the way. It's a, it's a very severe world at the moment. And I think we should be teaching people and uh, by illustrations of drama or film that promotes a sense of let's be aware, let's be compassionate. I that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph, I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, Sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs do bark at me as I hold by them. Why, I, in this weak piping time at peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless it's by my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. Why love forswore me in my mother's womb? And this idea that Richard is infectious, Richard infects you as an actor, what does that mean for you? I mean, do you need a buffer period after, after a performance as an actor? Oh, I think so. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. You do. If you're an actor and you've totally absorbed the character, it's a funny thing about actors. An actor can really absorb the character, and he, in fact, manifestly has to, to do justice to it. Can I do this and cannot get a crown? Tart, were it further up, I pluck it down! Playing Richard has such an effect on an actor. It gets inside your blood. Playing those extraordinary roles does not exactly contaminate you, but infect you. So that when you finish those great roles, it takes you some time to, in a way, get out of the character. You can't wash it off like makeup, and it can be Rather distressing if you go to a restaurant immediately after the show and say, I take off the floor! Excuse me, sir, do you have a reservation? Well, that can be rather embarrassing. In this film, you say when you take on the great roles, you're competing with the great performers of the past, and they're on the stage with yes. you. That made me wonder yes. how you experience that as an actor. Is it in the rehearsal, as you're getting into the role, that it, it plagues you, those voices of, from the past in your ears, and is it something you have to exercise? Well, I was saying it because not so much for the actor as the audience. For example, I can't see uh, many other 
riches because the hallmark is Olivier. And so that's what I mean. You're on the stage acting, dancing with the ghosts of the past. They're sharing the stage with you and you have to blow them away. Well, your Shylock really stands out. Ah! Signor Antonio. Many a time and often the Rialto, you have berated me for my money. And my uses <laughs> Yeah, well, have I borne it with a patient shrug? The sufferance is the badge of all that tribe. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine. An awful use of that which is mine own. Well then, it now appears you need my help, eh? Go to then. How did you decide on that voice for him? Where did that come from? Well, I thought part of the reason was that Shylock today has been, and I mentioned in the piece, homogenized, deodorized, cleaned up because we don't like to you know, infer that we are supporting him. So even some directors cut one or two lines. He says, I hate him for he is a Christian. Oh, cut that, they're so dumb. So I wanted to go the reverse way. Mammy is your suit. What should I say to you? Has a dog money? Is possible a cur can lend 3,000 ducats? Or shall I bend low and in the bondman's key with bated breath and whispered humbleness, I say, uh, you spat upon me Wednesday last, you spurned me such a day, another day, you called me dog? And for these much courtesies, I should lend you much money. I didn't want to, although I could have done, played him as a heroic Jew. They're the current fashion is the philosophical Jew, the noble Jew, the fiddler on the roof Jew. I thought I want to play him as the bard, as Shakespeare wrote him, as a disgusting, rancid, angry, filthy, dangerous. And I remember in the East End of my youth, in Petticoat Lane, the Jewish uh, stallholders, you know, the market dealers, and they had such voices, you know, they could melt you. They, they could set fire to the store with their anger in their voices if they were provoked. Boy! Look at how you storm. I would be friends with you. And have your love, forget the shames that you have stained me with. Supply your present wants and take no doit of interest for my pain. And you'll not hear me, this is kind I offer. This were kindness. This kindness will I show. Go with me to a notary. Seal me there your present bond. And... In a merry sport, if you repay me not on such a day, at such a time, such sum or sums that are expressed in the agreement, let the forfeit be nominated for an equal pound of your fair flesh, eh? Eh? <laughs> 
to be to be cut off and taken in what part of your body pleases me. <laughs> I don't, he's got some noble lines, Shylock, and his compassion is overwhelming. And when he feels that he's lost his dear wife and that the villains who have cheated him have even taken her jewels, he, that he's more upset that it was something he had given to her. But I do see him being um, somehow made too holy, and that's not why Shakespeare wrote it. No, why did he write such a damning portrait of a Jew? Well, he was merely looking for a box office success. And in any play, you need a good villain. And furthermore, he was not offending the Jews because at the time of writing, there were virtually no Jews in England. They had been expelled from this nation in 1290. But the Jew was interesting. The public didn't know enough, but they knew enough to make them be curious. Did they wear horns? What were their mysterious habits? Their weird language? Their fascinating, bizarre eating habits? Because just a short time before, Christopher Marlowe had written The Jew of Malta. Massive box office hit. People were fascinated because you need a great villain in order to demonstrate a hero, a powerful, strong hero. And so, without the villain, you cannot see the virtues of heroism, the power, the dynamic of a good man or a good woman, in this case, a good woman, as in Portia, in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. We need the villain. Now, this is a common thing with all... The public want uh, some excitement. They want some passion. They want some honesty. They want truth. They want anger. And, um, and that's why they like the villainy. But my own feeling is the hero makes far more impact on us. As I say, the villain may just get one or two cells it can, and stimulate us. But we love the hero. So when the hero comes riding, we are happy, we are thrilled. So at the moment, I think society tilts far more, fortunately for us, towards the hero. So the lines of, of Othello are so much more powerful than anything that any of the villains make, but brilliant as they are, are some of the speeches of Macbeth. But Othello... His speeches are just, because they're awesome, they're embracing the freedom of life, a life without pain, without jealousy. Uh, These are uh, amazing speeches. You know, the whole time I was watching the film, I was wondering what your inroad to Shakespeare's language was. And and you say that you had no interest in Shakespeare when you were younger, that it seemed just fusty and hard to understand and irrelevant. So what finally made the language real for you? 
or come alive? Well, by merely by studying it and by having an ally, one of the teachers there, when I first started at this little school, um, he was able to show me what this speech is meant. And I suddenly understood that this is an, a, a really magical writer because he's working on two or three components simultaneously. And so he showed me how each speech had further meanings. Yes, you say the language seems to go deeper inside you the more you get to know what it what it means. Yes. And as it got deeper, you yes. felt as if something was being touched, ignited. Yes. And that when it comes to playing yes. the character, that it was a kind of battle or rage. Is it a battle to express the many dimensions of the language or how the language possesses you as an actor? It's a challenge because he refines our thinking because he sees the many channels that it's on. So when Raven Richards says, um, I lack love's majesty to strut before a wandering, ambling nymph, well, what does he mean, lack love's majesty? And when I knew, he said, this is what it means. It means he's impotent. He hasn't got the majesty to create a real relationship with a woman. Oh, God, that's so clever. And put in such a way that it refines our way of thinking about it. It makes us uh, not only smarter, but also more aware he makes us aware by purging all those trivia out of us and makes us into somebody who can think. He takes us to another dimension. And so that's why he is um, the real philosopher of our millennium. You can, just by studying Shakespeare and having the opportunity to play it, it is so beneficial. And actors should once more claim him, play him. And even if they don't have an opportunity to be selected by some director or another, just do it yourself. Well, this has been so inspiring. Stephen Burkhoff, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Well, it's been absolutely my pleasure, and thank you very much. Stephen Burkhoff is an actor, director, playwright, and the creator of Shakespeare's Villains, which he has performed on stage since the 1990s. The producers of the film version, titled Shakespeare's Heroes and Villains, are currently working on a distribution deal. In the meantime, you can view it with a subscription to the Drama Online website, a division of Bloomsbury Books. Go to dramaonline.com plays for an alphabetical listing. I Am Alone, The Villain of the Earth was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquart at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Aidan Lyons at The Sound Company in London. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, we hope you'll do us a favor please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. 
And if you're visiting Washington, come visit us at the Folger Shakespeare Library on Capitol Hill. See a play in our Tudor Theater and come face to face with a first folio of Shakespeare's plays. We look forward to seeing you. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.